Hi, I'm Maria Thea Harris or Velosos, and today is Sober 50 Thursday. Now grab a cuppa and relax with us. So Organised Style Podcast acknowledges traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back to Sober 50 Thursday on So Organised Style Podcast. Today's podcast guest is PK or New Zealand Film Girl, as she's known on Instagram. So let's give a warm welcome to PK. Hi, PK. Hello. Hello. It's good to have you here and it's lovely to have another New Zealand sewist on the podcast. Yes, we need to get out there. There's a lot of us, I found out. Ah, and hopefully, listeners, if you are a New Zealand sewist, please contact me on Instagram. Can you tell us where we can find you online? Well, best is Instagram. That's where I post everything that seems to be the most interesting followers. That's where I get a lot of inspiration. There is a new account and hashtag, which is NZSOs, which you probably know about. But that's really helpful. And that's how I found out that there's heaps of women, men, people who are creating, sewing. I mean, New Zealand has heaps of knitters. If you want to knit, come on over. We've got heaps of people who knit. But sewing is, especially where I live, which is down south, Everybody knits and not a lot of people sew, so I'm on a mission to change that. So NZ Film Girl is my handle on Instagram, and that's really where you can find me. That's really generous of you to share your knowledge with sewers like that. Well, I think it's important. Nobody's invented the wheel. I don't care what you do. I don't care what design that you think you've created. You haven't. It's been done before, like everything. You've just got a new handle on it. And I think when you're starting out, it's very overwhelming, and you don't know just something simple like how do I cut out the fabric because nobody's really teaching this anymore so you'll look at a pattern and think it's too difficult but I tell everybody just take one step at a time even if it's just one day at a time and just try and do it it's nothing's difficult if you know how to do it and I think it's important to, to tell the reason why you do something a lot of people say now you sew this together you know blah blah And you don't understand why am I sewing it this way and not the way that the guide sheet told me? Well, the guide sheet's not wrong, but if you do it this way, you'll create that and that will open up that and that way you can do this. And it's explaining why you do that. That's not always clear, especially something like understitching, which a lot of young people and myself, you would never do understitching, what a waste of time. But you realize once you get a bit more experience, there's a reason for doing that. And tell the reason. And if they understand why they need to do it, I think people will do it more readily. Pre-wash your fabric. There's a reason for doing that. Iron your fabric or iron your pattern piece. There's a reason for doing that. If you have a wrinkle in your pattern piece, you're going to have a wrinkle in your fabric. If you have a wrinkle in your fabric, it's going to fold out and it'll be too big for the pattern piece. It's not important if you're making the wilder gown, which is very flowy and big and giant and it doesn't matter. But it's important if you're making a pair of tailored pants or a tailored coat or a shirt that's tailored, you need to make sure that your pattern roughly is close to what your measurements are. You know, you don't need to put a stone in your way by not ironing. Iron's important. Pressing cable. It's very important. (laughs) Sorry, on the point of ironing and pressing, do you have a specific iron that you always use or do you change them regularly? I've just recently got a gravity iron. I've wanted a gravity iron since... I worked at a high-end shop and went upstairs and saw the little old ladies doing alterations. I mean, we're going way back decades. I didn't know what it was called. I just remember walking in there and seeing they had these irons that would put out this amount of steam that made this. 
sound that, ah, oh, power, esteem, that's what I want. And you can never find it. And so about two or three years ago, I bought an Oliso. It has good steam and I like the way it works. It has that touch handle. So that way you put it down, you let go and you pull, you know, I, I got really used to that. I like that very, very much. And then I've been giving sewing workshops, teaching people how to sew. And I took my iron. And since people aren't used to keeping the iron horizontal, they kept putting it up vertically. And so therefore it tipped off and fell on the floor and therefore it kind of broke the steam function. So I've been upset and working with my Olizo now since then. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to buy a gravity iron. So I now have a gravity iron. I can tell you it's the best thing you can ever buy in the entire world. And my dear husband made me my pressing table, which is very large. It's 60 by 160. So it is wide enough. So that way I could open up my fabric and pre-iron an entire width and bolt of fabric without having to fold it. And also it's wide and large enough so that my iron can be parked at one end and I can still work on everything without having to worry about where the iron's going. It doubles as a kind of a workstation where I lay out things that I'm working on if I'm not ironing. I made the cover out of bump and a cotton canvas. The bump is actually a cover, but the cotton canvas I ended up staple gunning to the table because I thought that would be tauter than making an elastic removable because that'll always have a bit of give. Yeah. So that's very nice. It has a side drawer even, so that way if I'm using the entire width of the table, I can pull out the drawer and my iron can sit on that. So I can have full use of the 1.6 meters. And that's very good. I iron a lot and I advocate for that. It's very, very important to iron. And that's something that you also don't do when you're learning because you don't think it's important. I don't know how many garments I've seen on Instagram, on anywhere where man, girl, Give it a press. It would look so much better. Press as you go. Press every seam as you stitch it. Press clap. You need clappers. You need point presses. You need all of these items. They don't have to cost a lot. I have a pant presser, which I use when I make jeans to insert in the leg. So that way I have something to work on. That was just an old piece of two by four that was in my husband's workshop that I then covered in bump. So it's super simple. It doesn't need to be anything fancy. But these are really useful items that I notice a lot of people don't seem to invest in. So they think it's too costly or they don't need it. Where, you know, what you don't need is an ironing board. You know, you can fold up a blanket with a piece of cotton on top and put it on your dining room table. That's what you don't, that's what you don't need. But press, I teach people when I teach them sewing or when we go through a workshop, even with wool, you need a clapper, you need to press every single seam. And that takes time and that adds to the journey. I'm not one of these people who make something in a day or two hours or something. I'm not interested in that. I don't want to wear clothes that look like that. And I want to invest more time and make something that's more tailored. That's what I like to do. It's a good way of developing your sewing skill practice, just one skill at a time. And pressing is actually, as you've just described, quite huge in making something look impressive. Yeah, well, yeah, it's that. And my, and my other soapbox is surging everything. I, I think I, I used to own one. I sold it and I have one. That's really nice. I think it's a baby lock. I've never even used it. It's in the drawer. I don't like, I think anything that you can do with a surge, serger or overlocker that you would need to do in working with wovens. I only work with wovens. I rarely use knits. I don't know. I just like wovens. I, that's what I like. You can do all of that with a zigzag 
or a lightning stitch if you're, you are sewing knits. Ready to wear is not the goal. It's a step beyond ready to wear. We want to be couture. We want it to look as good on the inside as on the outside. And you can't accomplish that with an overlocker. It's fast. You'll be done in no time. We've all been there. You've been there. I've been there. When you're young, you know, you'd go home and you'd make something and you wear it to school or to work the next day. That's what you did. It was exciting. You were designing stuff. You were throwing patterns together and fabrics that didn't match together because you thought it was cool and fun. But once you get to a certain age in life, and that's different for everybody, and it has not so much to do with years, but experience, you really want to up your game. You want to be proud of what you wear. You don't want it to look like you can buy it. You want it to look better than that. And you want to do your own thing. And if you want to have a yellow coat, you're going to make a yellow coat because you can't buy one. And if you want to have a purple polka dotted shirt, you're going to make it, but you're going to make sure all the polka dots match. You're going to make it really cool because that will stand out more so. And then you need to press. Otherwise, it's not going to match up. So I agree. In your bio on Instagram, you describe yourself as cineast. What does this really mean? I'm a cineast, true at heart. I've been in the movie business my whole life. Okay. Since way back, I've worked every aspect of a movie theater you can work. I had a company and I did all sorts of, yeah, that's my past life. My ex-husband, my daughter, they're all involved in the film industry, behind the scenes film industry. Yep. We watch a lot of film. My husband and I, that's our thing. That's film is our book club. We're watch, always watching film and I like film. I look at film differently than probably normal people look at film. And so that's probably what I am more than anything. And now that I no longer have the day job, it's allowed me to move to New Zealand. I've rediscovered all the sewing and the creativity involved with sewing and what you can do and pushing boundaries and trying new things. I've just started a bra, which I've never made before. And I found out that, hmm, I know a lot, but I don't know this. So there's always something you can learn. And like I say, once you've figured it out, how it works, well, yeah, that was easy. But just before that, figuring it out, where you're thinking, just that day, hour before, where you think, God, this is going to look like, oh, it's not going to work out at all. And then, then it all works out. Then you realize, well, I can do this a whole bunch better. So, you know, my next bra is going to be a lot better than the first bra. I can tell you that right now. But it's fun. It's something different. It's, you know, it's something that, it's really hard to find cool bras and maybe you don't want that one. You want that one, but you want it to be in fuchsia with purple lace because that'll match the dress that you're wearing, but they don't sell that. So what are you going to do? You know, you're teaching sewing now that you're in New Zealand. When did you start sewing? I started sewing with a neighbor babysitter. I was quite young. I was probably nine making the Barbie clothes. And it was just basically a muumuu with an elastic band at the top. It was super simple. But I was also quite small. And I remember doing that with her. She taught me how, and I'd go to her house afternoons. But I really learned to sew in seventh grade when you took sewing in junior high. And that's where I learned to sew. And my cousin that was living in town at the time, a year older than I am, she also loved to sew. So we would meet up. And especially when I got older, so 16 and can drive a car, we would meet up in the evenings and we'd sew a whole bunch of stuff. And we'd always, and like I said, we'd be sewing things backwards and forwards and getting remnants. And I remember I sewed corduroy shorts for fronts and the nap was going horizontally instead of vertically because I thought it looked better that way. And I remember my sewing teacher then gave me a C on that because I didn't do my nap correctly. 
I thought, well, you just don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> then I moved to Europe, Germany, and they didn't sew there. They, I don't know, they didn't have, I was coming from the big four. You had the simplicity and the vogue and the butter and all these patterns, you know how they are. You had the guide sheet and all the patterns and everything. And they didn't really have that. They had Berta and they said everything. It wasn't so much the language. It was the fact that they approached it from such bizarre way. And then the seam allowances were included. And I remember making Mardi Gras costumes and I couldn't understand what, luckily I knew what the end product was supposed to be. So I kind of winged it. I mean, Ikea was big back then. I mean, it's still big, but it was really just, you know, getting to be the first wave of big and they had such inexpensive fabrics. And so you'd go to Ikea and buy all this cool furnishing fabric and make outfits out of that. Then the Laurel Ashley phase came where you'd put fabric on your walls. So I did that. That uh, was now that's a lot of pressing involved. That's no fun. <laughs> but I remember, you know, buying sheets and fabrics and fabricing the entire walls of the apartment. I did that. And then the kids came and you made kids stuff. And then I stopped for a while. My business became very time consuming and big. I had staff, I had a whole office, I had a whole bunch of stuff going on. And then I got to do the the Devil Wears Prada bit where I was very corporate and got to wear Prada and all this stuff. And I was a very important person and uh, tried to look the part. And I enjoyed that very much. That was a, not a long part of my life, but I liked that part very much. I traveled a lot, did a lot and did no longer sew and bought everything because I could and I wanted to. So I totally understand people who do that because I used to be like that. But then, you know, when the disposable income stops and you start thinking, hmm, $800 for skirt, you know, you start to rethink that a bit. Moving then to New Zealand and stopping all of that and starting a new path, I got back into it just as a creative outlet, really, because I wanted to do. And it was really difficult then to, I think that really triggered when Spotlight opened nearby. It just had a lot of options, which for about a week, I found really interesting. And then I didn't anymore. And then that's when the search started on how now what do I find in this country or in Australia that is easy to attain and what can I make and what can I do? So when we first started talking about your coming onto the podcast, you were in the midst of making the Croatian shirt. Tell us about that project. The Croatian shirt. I'll be totally honest and say that I don't wear this very often. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy making it. I've wanted to make it since I discovered the pattern from our folkwear pattern people. It speaks to my heritage. And I just knew that to make this shirt, I needed mental time. You know, obviously you need time. But I also needed to be in the right frame of mind because I knew what I wanted to do with the shirt. That's away from the pattern. I went through a lot of old photos from my grandparents just to get some inspiration on the embellishing part of it. And what I wanted to do with that. The struggle I have now, the shirt itself is basically a sack where it has a structure to the sack, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very much this old fashioned style of farmer in the fields, folkwear pattern. And you have to remember that when you're making it. And that was a bit of a struggle for me while making it. I kept wanting to change it. I kept wanting to, oh, it needs another pleat here. And it needs another line in here because I love to make tailored shirts. But I, I had to stop and remind myself what I'm actually making here. I'm making a historic heritage shirt. 
the most fun I had making the shirt was doing all the tucking on the front and the honeycomb scalloping, which was all hand done. And then I embroidered another line of blanket stitching, so to speak. I think it's called the Palestina stitch down the front placket. So I put a lot of effort into the front because the whole shirt is just about the bodice in the front. The rest of the shirt's just a white linen sack that has gussets under the arm. So I enjoyed that very much. And it seemed a lot of people enjoyed watching me do that. I was, that was really interesting for me to see how people were really excited about watching how it came together. The collar is too small and it wasn't drafted very well. It's supposed to make nine pleats, and for the life of me, I could only fit six in. The sleeves are too short. The wrists are too short. You can't even close the wrists. And such a giant pattern that it seems to be odd the way it was drafted. But I enjoyed making it. I used a really nice linen for it, and I do wear it in the summer, just not heaps, not as much as I thought I would want to wear it. On the Sober 50 account, you've also put a guest post about embellishing. Can you talk us through that post? It's really about labels and monograms. Okay. It's really just to get people's mind about how to approach embellishing. And this is something you have to think about when you're in your head designing the garment you're making. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be slacks. It can be a simple top. Anything that you want to do, what do you want to add to this garment that will be you making it yours? So one thing that a lot, a lot of people add are labels. There's heaps of labels out there. I have my own label that I design and I use a lot of Kylie's labels. You need to think, okay, where do I want to put the label and what label do I want to use? So you need to think about this before you even start sewing the garment because they come in at different stages of construction. I noticed that a lot of my pet peeves with people who use labels is one, they use too many. They have five labels because they're so fun. Oh, this is so funny. I'm going to use this one and that one and that one and this one. And it's overload. I mean, I'm a big fan of labels and I use a lot, but sometimes less is more. So decide where, where you want to put your label and what label you want to put there. My second pet peeve is that people don't change the color of their thread when they put on a label. So if your label is, say, white, then you should be using white. If it's black, you should be using black in your upper thread. If it's uh, off color, use gray because gray kind of matches everything. If it's blue, blue. Kylie's labels are usually an off-white or a black. So it's pretty simple. I have designated label thread that's in the drawer that I grab when I do labels. Take the extra time because it looks a lot better. Pin the label on. Don't try to eye it. I can guarantee you it'll be crooked. I don't care how good you are. It will definitely be crooked if you don't put two pins in just to hold the label. And then you start. And when you get to the corner of your label, you stop, you pivot, and you hand stitch the very next stitch. Because very often when you get to a corner and you're edge stitching, top stitching, that first stitch might go diagonal because the bobbin didn't quite catch the thread underneath. So this is me explaining why am I doing this. There's a reason to do it. So if you manually hand stitch that first stitch, the bobbin has caught most likely underneath and you'll have a neat corner. Another trick is to count the stitches going down the first two sides. It'll be symmetrical. So your first two sides will be repeated again. So if you count your stitches and you know it's eight stitches till I pivot and then 16 till I pivot, 
the pressure foot is not a good gauge of where your needle should stop. Every machine is different. Some people have clear presser feet, some people don't. But if you know it's 16 stitches till I get to the end, when you stitch on your label, it will look symmetrical and not wonky. And then bury your threads. No backstitching on labels. You do not backstitch. So you start, you go down. And when you're almost to the end again, so going in your whole circle, you pull that upper thread to the back. So that way you won't tangle it up when you get to the end with your new upper and lower thread. Then you pull everything to the back, knot it off. And if it's going to be covered in a lining or something, just snip it. Yep. And if not, bury it in the label itself. So now you have a nice, neat label, and then you press that. So that way you set your stitches in the seam. That's the reason why you press as you sew, because pressing the heat of the iron will set the stitch in what you just sewed, which will allow the seam, if it's a side seam, to have more structure and have more strength. And also the label, it'll just ease out any puckers that you might have, minuscule little puckers that come by using the thread to the fabric. So I talked a lot about then labels and how important that is. And my other part was doing a timestamp, which is something I do on everything that I make. If you have a machine that has monogramming, the letters, and I put that somewhere, you know, it could be on the inside pocket, the inside waistband. You can do it on a French side seam. I write usually what the pattern is, what the size is, and what the month and year is. That's just my timestamp that I do. That's my couture aspect of making clothes that it's labeled down there, which is fun something I like to do, use a color of thread that will stand out, so not tone in tone. And you can put it in the back yoke of a skirt. It's just something individual that makes it look cool, I think. And then what I do a lot of is the monogram, which is my stylized M. I put it on almost everything I make somewhere. It has to fit the garment though. It won't fit every garment. I just made a couple of coats. So it is on the coat. But I also just made a cashmere hunter coat. It is not on the cashmere hunter coat. It doesn't match that coat. I have other things on the inside of the hunter coat that make it personal. But that's using tissue paper. So that's where you would draw whatever letter or... So I've done gifts for people where I've done a star because they love stars. You draw that on tissue paper with a Sharpie, as large or small as you want. And then you pin that piece of tissue paper where you want it in your garment. And this is also where you have to think ahead. So are you going to be adding a monogram? Where do you want that monogram to be? If it is on a patch pocket, like a jeans pocket, where I often do them, you need to put that on the pocket before you put the pocket on the garment. If it's going to be on the back neckline of a shirt or a dress or on the front of a shirt or a dress, do that before the garment gets too bulky with weight. A lot of times the guide sheet will have you be putting together things and sometimes it's easier to do it in a different order so that way you don't have the weight of the garment bulking you down. Collars are a good example of that. If you can, put your collar on before you do the sleeves. You're just adding extra weight to the garment and that allows you to get a better approach to sewing the collar if you have less to work with. And that's the same with monogramming. Sometimes you don't know where you want it until you see the garment come together. You pin that to where you want it on the garment and you use a top stitching thread and you basically follow the line of your Sharpie as you sew over that monogram and you pivot. Again, every time you pivot, you hand stitch the first stitch. If you're doing a curve, you might want to hand stitch that whole curve and slowly move the fabric, you know, millimeter wise to make a curve. 
And at the end, you cut a long thread, you tie a knot at each beginning and end, but you don't cut your threads yet. And then you tear away the tissue paper to leave the monogram intact. And the reason why you don't cut your threads quite yet is that when you tear away at the tissue paper, you're creating a tension and that can cause your stitches to move. And if you didn't tie a really tight knot and you cut those threads, all of a sudden you've got really short threads that you can't do anything with and you can't use your monogram at all. So by waiting until all the tissue paper is gone, if you're using a backing, then you can bury those threads in the backing. Otherwise, cut them short and fray stop, a little bit of fray stop on the other side. I made a linen dress where I used a backing because it was at the chest area and I didn't want the top stitching to kind of weigh down the chest area of the dress. So I used a sew-on interfacing and you can use any interfacing, iron-on or sew-on but you don't iron it on. So you just use it as the backing. You do exactly as I said, and you stitch your monogram over that sandwich. And then when you've cut your threads and buried your threads, then you can go and with like duckbill scissors or something, you can trim off that interfacing so that it's really just the size of your monogram. And then if you want to, if you've used an iron on, now you can iron that on just to set that. That gives a little bit of a backing and it's not like this giant circle of backing underneath a monogram. You're trimming it down to the stitches. I think monogram is a very individual cool thing to do. And you can, if you use a stylized letter or something that you really like, and you put that in places on all of your garments, it's like your label, your mark, it's your Nike, you know, it's, <laughs> and if you have a lot of clothes that have that and people notice that they'll, they'll probably over time think that you bought that that way. And where did you get this? You know, they're looking for these linen garments that have a star on the back. I can't find those anywhere. It's something you can do that's high end without being difficult, but you have to plan ahead. And that's when I approach making a garment. I think about it. I sketch it. I don't go over the top on sketching. There's some people out there, they do wonderful sketching, but I do have a journal every year where I mark everything that I make and I go through what I make on the patterns. I write what changes I make. I have to lengthen a lot of things, what thread color I used, what fabric I used, how much elastic I needed. Everything that is goes involves with making what I make is in this book. And that's where I also have a very rudimentary sketch of what I'm making with this. And that's when I sketch it. I sketch it first before I start. And then I'll probably think about it overnight. I think, oh, that would be, when you look at the sketch, you could, oh, I, I could put a label that, that's a side pocket. So I could put the label on the side seam there. Or I could do the monogram on the back bottom of the leg at the hem. That'll look cool. I make a lot of jeans. So, you know, what can I do there? What colors of top stitching do I want? So you start thinking about it before you actually start making it. And by then you kind of know what you want to do and I can approach it that way. So it's a longer journey. So in that journal of yours, there must be quite a few coat, shirt and jeans sketches because they seem to be what you love to do. Yes. I like to do that. I like the, the tailoring challenge of making something crisp. I love to make jeans. I must have nine pair and I continue to make jeans because it's not so much that they fit me so much better than store-bought jeans. I also have ready-to-wear jeans that I still wear. It's really hard to find good denim too. I'll have to put that in. And I just found some in Tokyo. That was really cool denim, but it's raw, which means there's zero stretch in that denim. Even though it's a non-stretch denim, 
they have a tiny bit of stretch in them because they've been worked at at the mill. So it's minimal, but there's some stretch there where the raw denim from Tokyo is purely raw. But man, looks very cool on the patina. And I just like the whole point of the top stitching and putting it together and the exactness. Yeah. Forcing yourself to be exact on the top stitching. I like that level of detail. Shirts is the same. I like the level of detail involved in making a shirt. And that doesn't mean that I don't like making other things. I like to challenge myself by trying to get it even better than I did before. And I don't find there's that much of a challenge in just really simple tops. But once you get over that first little hurdle, then you can start making a whole bunch of cool stuff. And by finding things and coats, especially, I'm addicted. I'm coat poor. I have so many coats. Um, I can never wear all the coats that I had. I'll make more. Where I live, it seems it's all black jackets, gray fleece. Nobody wants to stand out. Oh, no, I just like traditional. It's like, well, no. (laughs) I'm on a journey to teach people that you can still be traditional and wear red. Just, you know, green. What's wrong with green or blue? There's so many beautiful shades of blue. Why not stand out a little bit? I agree. Coats are such an amazing garment that you wear when it's cold. And, you know, when I used to work in the city, there was a sea of black. Everyone had a black coat. And I thought, you know what? I want color in my coat. No, I agree. I I have two black coats. There's nothing wrong with a black coat. Exactly, yeah. Um, But, you know, everybody needs a black coat for a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah, yeah. That's one coat. The cashmere coat I just made is navy blue. And that's something, if you're going to work with cashmere, you have to look at what you're working with as well. I personally would not want a fuchsia cashmere coat unless you gifted me the fabric. Then I would make myself a (laughs) fuchsia cashmere coat because that's a forever garment. Cashmere is forever. But the wool, I just made the yellow in a gorgeous double faced. It's so warm. It's so beautiful. You know, that's a fun coat. That was not an expensive coat. The fabric's very reasonably priced. My daughter, she just learned to sew two years ago. She's made three coats already. She loves it. She's having no problem diving into that. But that doesn't have to last a lifetime. That lasts as long as you feel like wearing it. And there's nothing wrong with that. How people will say, oh, but the fabric costs money. Yeah, but going out to dinner costs money. It doesn't always have to be forever. You know, you wear it as long as you have fun with it. And and then you see what happens and you put it away for a couple of years and then you take it out again and you think, gee, I forgot all about that. Now that we've spoken about this post that you've written for the Sober 50 community, when did you discover the Sober 50 community? I must have found it right around day dot. I was really new. They hardly had any followers. And I started following them and I don't even remember how I got onto them. It must have been through some sort of a tag. Yeah. Uh, Maybe when I started posting more on Instagram that when I was looking for tags and, you know, with my age and all that, looking at people as you do on Instagram and seeing what tags they're using Mm -hmm. to use those tags as well to build up, you know, your fan base or, or just to make sure that you're following the correct tags to get you inspiration from things that you want to do. And that's probably where I saw it and used it. And then from the tag, I realized that there was an account and I like the account very much. They're, they're very generous women who spend a lot of time creating that account and monitoring that account. They've been good to me. They repost a lot of my things, which is really just, you know, an ego boost, but it's a fun, it's nice. 
you don't get anything from that. I'm not out to get anything from that. That's certainly not my goal at all. Um, I like to use Instagram to teach in some way, just to offer information on how I do something and to get information, new patterns, new things that people are making, new fabrics that you can find, a new store that sells fabrics because they found this cool fabric. And so it's, you know, finding things that I can use and learning things as well from other people who sew something. Oh, that's clever. How do they do that? Mm-hmm. You know, and read about it. That's what I use it for. And it's fun when people like what you do and enjoy what you write and take inspiration from it. And you see all of a sudden in their feed, you know, a couple of months later, oh, they've made something similar to what I made because they got inspired by doing the monogram or this or whatever, or using yellow. And they're using that now. So you feel like it's a big, you know, it's a nice community where you want to help each other. You know, there'll always be someone who knows more than you. So don't try to be the know-it-all because you're not. (laughs) And everybody has to start. And how thankful that, you know, your seventh grade self, how thankful you would have been if somebody, not just the teacher who said press and you think, nah, I don't want to press. That if she'd taken the extra two sentences to explain to you why you should press, then you understand. And then if you're that kind of person, you can still not press because you don't want to, but at least if you do press, you understand why you're pressing or why am I cutting it out like this? Or why am I clipping a curve? Or why am I, you know, doing stay stitching or any sort of anything that you're supposed to do in a guide sheet? Why am I doing that? Instead of just following, you know, well, you know, how many times have we not done that because we can't be bothered? You know, why do I need two rows of gathering stitches? Oh, it's so boring. So I'm just going to do one. Well, if you use two, it does look better because the fabric responds better, you know, and there's a better way to do it than the guide sheet says, but still, you know, there's a reason to do two. And I think you've just illustrated how the Sad 50 community intersects, intersects a lot of different people and yeah. you've got the ability to share what you know and learn from each other. Yes, very much so. It's surprising the amount of people that they have now following them. It's like Mm -hmm. five digit, which is fantastic. And it'll grow from there. I know it will. The world's big. And it's also maybe opening up the minds of the big four and other to be just knowledgeable about the older woman or person. I remember when I was growing up, my mother would say that, you know, fashion caters to the young, but they don't, she doesn't realize that I have the money to buy it. You know, of course, you know, I was 12 when she said that, I didn't know what she was talking about. Now, you know, it's true. Now, some of us, not all of us, I understand that, but you do have a disposable income where you can say, I'm going to throw a hundred dollars at yellow wool because I want a yellow coat. But the pattern companies, so often you'll see a pattern especially what I just made, which is a wrap dress, the model on the pattern when she had no figure. So I know a lot of people of a whole bunch of different ages have no figure, but she had no figure to the point of being modeling no figure. So that doesn't help anybody that has a shape. That dress is not selling it to you at all because she's not filling out that dress in any way, shape or form. So you need imagination to look beyond that pattern photo. And a lot of people don't have that. And I had an aunt who would only make the clothes that were in the exact same fabric as the pattern photo on the Simplicity pattern cover. So if she saw a photo of like a muumuu or a pant and jacket, and it was in brown tweed, mm-hmm. she would go and buy brown tweed. She would look at that and say, oh, I want a brown tweed. Ja- oh, I'm going to make those pants because I want brown tweed pants. 
and she'd go buy the brown tweed and that's what she'd make. She didn't realize in her mind that that's just a suggestion. You can make those in linen, in denim, in cotton, in velvet, in red, in blue, in pink, in floral, in plaid. You can do all sorts of stuff with that, but she doesn't see that. She only made it the way the pattern company sold it to her on that cover photo. So if she saw a cover photo of a, a dress or pant, whatever, and one, she didn't like the color and it didn't fit the model very good. So she's thinking that's what she's going to look like because that's what people do when you see advertising. The whole point of advertising is to make you to buy it so that you're supposed to say, oh, I'm going to look this so fabulously great in this dress. I'm going to buy it. But that fabric, that pattern photo is not doing the dress or whatever the garment is any justice. And I think the so over 50 community, by opening those people's eyes, will realize, I understand that a model has to have model features. I understand that. But just by opening that up a bit so that not everybody's 19 and that maybe you've got some 39 to 45 year olds on the cover and some of them have embraced that. It's easier for the sewist to put themselves in that position and say, I could, I could do this. I could look good in this because not everybody has the imagination or knows their own body. And that's always a learning curve, isn't it? Not your own body. Cause it keeps changing. <laughs> it doesn't stay the way you want it to be, you know, and everybody has good days and bad days. And it's knowing what can I do with this guide sheet with these, the bones of the pattern to make it mine. And that's, if you get that far, you're doing really good because then you've really reached a part of sewing where you can make it your own and take it to a new level. And that's the beauty of the Cyber 50 community is that, you know, you see the examples of sellers who have made something in a shape that is probably the same as yours. And it's like, a oh, that's really great. I can do this. Yeah, she looks great in that. How often do I, I read, people tell me, and I also write, I would have never looked at that pattern if you had not made it. Yes. Because then you go back to the pattern. Oh, it's a blah, 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 blah from blah, blah. And you go look at it. Oh, oh, that looks like, hmm. Mm -hmm. that. But then you see, well, you know, Susie Q over here and wherever, that looked really smart because she used a linen and she made this with it. And she's, you know, this shape or she's super tall and she made it work or she's super short and she made it work. And then, you know, that opens up all this creativity. And that's what the community is really good for. And they're also what I think is really good is they don't pressure you and they encourage, you know, you look at people, you can tell they're very new to sewing, um, like they didn't press everything and everything's a bit wonky, but look how happy they are. Yeah. And instead of coming and saying, well, you know, like I'm saying you didn't press it and your seams wonky, I would not tell you that. I want to encourage you, you did a great job. Look at you. And then, you know, as well, you know, next time, if you do it again, think if, you know, if you press it, it will look even better, but it already looks really good. Yeah. You know, and you did such a good, look at those buttonholes. You did those really, really well. There's always room to improve, but you know, you've got it. And that's what I think the community does a good job of, of encouraging people to post Yeah. and to be not afraid, you know, and you've got people, my goodness, making swimsuits. And the bravery they have of, you know, I made a swimsuit and there they are on the beach and they're so happy and proud. How can't you be happy and proud of them for doing that? That's right. You know, right. You're not Claudia Schiffer, but who is, you know, you're not, if I was paid the money that she is, I would look like her 
but nobody's paying me that amount of money. So I saw no reason to have to do that. So, but that's what, that's very inclusive that way. I mean, the whole sewing community is becoming very inclusive. And I'm of course saying this from a very privileged standpoint because I'm, I'm more of a status quo person. Mm-hmm. So I don't have the issues that other people have, but I notice it. And I notice it being more open to all sorts of people and genders and disabilities and abilities and strengths and weaknesses. And that's a really positive message that you don't have to look like this or be that person to sew it, make it, or wear it. You can do it, whoever you are, you can do it. And I think that's a really positive message that the Sew Over 50 group have started to nurture. And the people who post and like yourself who tag into it are also getting it wider. Because there's enough, you know, there's enough naysayers out there. There's enough sassy people. Focus on the beautiful positive and be supportive. And we want to encourage people who want to sew to keep sewing. PK, it sounds like you've got a whole series of guest posts in your mind that you're ready to write at any point in time. Yes, just shoot me a line. There we go. I'm really thankful that you've agreed to be on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope there's something interesting in there. Be brave. Go for it. If you have an, if you have a question, ask. Exactly. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a lovely day, listeners. This episode of Soul Organized Style Podcast for Sober 50 was produced by me, Maria Thea Harris, with permission of PK. Sound by bensound.com. You can subscribe to Soul Organized Style Podcast, but with an S, not a Z, on all good podcast apps. Make sure you give us a five-star rating and review on the app that you use. Also, we encourage you to go back and listen to our Sew Over 50 podcast archive. Post any questions or suggestions you have on our Instagram account at Sew Organized Style or on our website at www.seworganizedstyle.com or on our Facebook page. We look forward to joining you in your sewing room next time. Stay safe, everyone.